Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. You are listening to Healthcare Unfiltered, my new podcast that tackles all aspects of healthcare, whether it's treatment, whether it's policy, whether it's oncology or non-oncology. All topics can be addressed and can be discussed on healthcare unfiltered, and they are indeed unfiltered. We do no editing. We bring you everything as it happened in real life and in real time. Well, today's podcast is rather interesting because it is rather specific, though, for folks who are interested in the treatment of lymphoid malignancies and specifically diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. For those of you who are not oncologists or not lymphoma specialists, so um, non-Hodgkin lymphoma is a disease that is rather heterogeneous, but one of the subtypes of non-Hodgkin lymphoma called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is the most common subtype of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It's an aggressive type of lymphoid malignancy, and it is curable with systemic chemotherapy. Sometimes radiation is added in early stage disease, but really, frankly, systemic chemotherapy is the uh, backbone of treating patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Now, interestingly, there are patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma who have high risk of developing central nervous system disease, and they sometimes relapse in the central nervous system, creating a very difficult approach to treating the recurrent malignancy. Now, there has been a lot of talks over the past 20 years, I would say since I was in training, about the importance of offering patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma CNS prophylaxis. In other words, identifying patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma who are at the highest risk of developing central nervous system relapse or recurrence, and then offering these patients some form of a prophylactic uh, regimen or a prophylactic protocol. That could be high-dose uh, intravenous methotrexate, that could be intrathecal chemotherapy with methotrexate, and so forth. And, you know, there was always two sides um, of, the, uh, of this. One side saying, well, we really don't know for sure whether we need to offer CNS prophylaxis or not. And if we are to offer CNS prophylaxis, should we give the intravenous high-dose methotrexate or should we give intrathecal therapy or blah, blah, blah. And there's the other side that said, well, guess what? We really don't have any evidence that we need to offer CNS prophylaxis and we just take our chances. There's nothing really, we don't need to subject these patients to any form of CNS prophylaxis. So as we do on Healthcare Unfiltered, in order for us to resolve this issue, we bring two experts in the field of lymphoid malignancies to tackle and debate the issue. So we need to debate whether CNS prophylaxis should be offered to a subset of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And I'm going to ask my guests to introduce themselves when they come on the air, but I'm very happy to have two phenomenal colleagues, and they are on, one of them is in Europe, and the other one is in the U.S. So we've got Dr. Aaron Goodman, uh, a.k.a. Papahim. So Aaron, 
Now his nickname is Papa Him. Let me tell you, we're going to ask him, what in the world is Papa Him? But he is a hematologist, and uh, he takes care of hematologic malignancies at the University of California in San Diego. And Dr. Matt Wilson, who is in the UK, and um, they both will introduce themselves. But really, the idea of bringing two opposing points of view is what we love to do on healthcare unfiltered. It's actually important because sometimes there are no absolute answers and being able to debate all issues in healthcare and in oncology specifically is very important hopefully to listeners. And if you are listening and you are a junior faculty or a fellow in training, this is the kind of episode you really wanna pay attention to because I do think it's rather important to hear opposing views solidified by data and hopefully reach a common ground. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy today's show. It's a debate on should we offer CNS prophylaxis to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients? And what type of CNS prophylaxis do we offer? Should we do that? Uh, I also want to make sure I plug the show. Uh, please find the show at any podcast outlets. You usually consume podcasts. Give the show the number of stars that we deserve and write a brief review if your time allows. Please refer a friend or a colleague. Pick a couple of episodes that you think your friend might like and offer that he or she would listen to this episode. I would love to always hear feedback from you, and I'm sure you can let me know where I could do better and where I'm doing well. Without further ado, Drs. Aaron Goodman and Matt Wilson, exclusively on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. All right. Well, look, here they are. Uh, we've got two excellent debaters uh, uh, and experts in the hematologic malignancy space. One of them claims that he uh, also plays guitar and stuff like that and is wearing an ACDC shirt. And Aaron, introduce yourself to uh, listeners. Uh, you're very prolific on Twitter. As part of your introduction, I'd like to know how did you become Papa Him? So, um, well, first, Aaron Goodman, nice to, to meet everyone who I don't already know. Um, I work at UCSD. I'm in the division of bone marrow transplant, but we, we also treat patients who don't need transplants. I'm involved in the fellowship education program, uh, and I treat all sorts of, of blood cancers. Uh, uh, it's not just one specific. So myeloma, lymphomas, acute leukemias. So kind of a bread and butter malignant hematologist. Um, Papa, heme someone called me Papa one time, and... Um, I liked it. And then I was, it was like 10 weeks ago and I was with my wife and I, my dad actually, uh, he, I was, I was visiting because we were just both been vaccinated. And um, I said, I'm going to put this in, in quotations. And then they both made fun of me um, quite a lot, actually. And then my coworkers found out, which I was actually kind of embarrassed about a little bit when they found out because they started calling me at work and the nurses. And then I just, you know, now I own it. And uh, now 10 weeks, literally, I saw my dad again. He's like, I was there for the creation of Papa Heem. Uh, um, but it was it was a Twitter. Someone who follows me uh, recommended it and, and it stuck. And I'm a father. I have three young girls. And that's a lot of actually the hardest part of my job is taking care of them. It is pretty fun. I do call you Papa now. It's it's kind of funny, actually. It, it, it is good. You put a lot of quizzes on uh, Twitter, which is which are really a lot of fun. Just keep doing this. I, I, I love uh, being challenged. I'll admit so far I have not gotten any gold star from Papa, but I, I don't like to admit that on Twitter. Yeah, Matt. you haven't got one right yet that I'm aware of, but that's okay. Keep trying. 
Yeah, no, I keep trying. I'm, I'm not, you know, I haven't gotten one. I know, you know, the Papa level, I never get the Papa level. I get, you know, a few levels down. Matt, uh, introduce yourself and uh, where you practice and where you are. Sure, thanks, Shadi. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm Matt Wilson. Uh, so I'm a hematology final year, what we call registrar in the UK. So a different system to the US. I, I'm in my last few months of training before I become a consultant, which I guess you guys would call attending. Is that correct? And uh, yeah, I, got, I work in, the, in, the, in Glasgow in the UK, uh, in the Beats and West of Scotland Cancer Centre. So it's a big, um, big catchment and um, big lymphoma practice. Um, but, you know, I do lymphoma is my subspecialty interest, but uh, I'm involved in treating all, all, all other hemonc diagnoses as well. Yeah, CNS prophylaxis. So I, I, during my lymphoma fellowship I did a couple of years ago, I got involved in this really um, when I got an opportunity to co-author our British British Society of Hematology guideline, updated guideline on, on uh, CNS prophylaxis. So um, that's when I really got interested in the, really delved into the, the data or, or, or maybe lack of data as, as we'll go on to discuss. But. Well, but let's set the stage though. I mean, we're going to talk about CNS prophylaxis in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, right? I mean, we, we're going to yeah. set the stage a little bit because not all of the listeners obviously are prolific in lymphoid malignancies. We have a lot of just general oncologists as, as well as um, fellows in training and so forth. So what I want to just start with is why, when did this become a topic? Like, in other words, why, why in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, CNS prophylaxis became a topic? Who wants to tackle that? Yeah, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, commonest type of uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, is an aggressive but, but curable for the majority lymphoma. Um, and, you know, we've got a, a very well-established treatment for, for the majority of patients, which continues to be proven to be the, the best treatment and nothing seems to be beating it with our chop. Um, and that will that will cure the majority you know, in the region of about two thirds of patients. But um, there remains a significant proportion who where that treatment will fail and they may relapse with lymphoma systemically or they, they may either be relapsed or, or not respond to treatment. But there's also a small proportion where they will relapse uh, within the central nervous system. And that, that proportion is in this in this area in the rituxan beer is probably around about five percent overall but so it is a, a small percentage of patients overall but we know now that there are certain patients who are definitely at much higher risk um, as we'll maybe talk about um and i think the essence of all this is that unfortunately uh relapsing within the central nervous system is a, a fairly devastating event for patients and almost universally fatal unfortunately um despite all the advances that we've seen. And so, yeah, the idea has been, you know, how, how do we incorporate something into our treatment that will maybe prevent this rare but devastating event? And that's where CNS prophylaxis has come into it. So what, how can we deliver some sort of treatment that will penetrate the CNS and, and, and hopefully prevent, prevent this uh, fairly awful event from happening? So, Aaron, so we are talking about the 5% of patient then of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that that might have higher risk of developing CNS disease. That's the subset of patients we're talking about. Back when you were in training and, and so forth, what was the classic teaching as to who, who are these patients and how were you trained when you were a fellow into how to manage this? Yeah, so, uh, and we'll get into our feelings and beliefs on this later into the debate, but, you know, I was trained CNS prophylaxis. That was part of my training. And uh, I never, you know, as a fellow, as a trainee, you don't, 
questioned much, wasn't until more of my attending years. But basically, anyone deemed high risk uh, of CNS relapse, we gave intrathecal. We actually, in my training, we didn't do much, if any, high-dose methotrexate uh, CNS prophylaxis. So intrathecal, usually four LPs with you know methotrexate 12 to 15 milligrams. And what we deemed high risk actually varied by attending, uh, but for the, HI, the patients with HIV, uh, we're all deemed, uh, uh, and I'm talking strictly DLBCL, not Burkitt's or ALL. So uh, HIV, DLBCL were deemed high risk. Um, during my training, we uh, learned about the CNS IPI, which is basically just the standard IPI uh, plus um, kidney and adrenal involvement. And if you have enough of those points, uh, you are segregated into low, intermediate, and high risk. Low being about a 1% risk of CNS uh, relapse. Uh, intermediate being, I think, 3%, and then high risk, 10%. So, you know, somewhere in the middle of my training, that, that came to be kind of, we would calculate this, and those 10% or more was deemed, you know, we use that as our arbitrary cutoff uh, as who we defined high risk. But then it got more complicated, at least for me. I started seeing, you know, patients who didn't have uh, all the traditional risk factors, but maybe they had breast involvement by their lymphoma. So some attendings called that high risk, and they, they got intrathecal chemotherapy. Or uh, a few extranodal sites or a super high LDH, uh, those were given, or maybe a little epidural involvement without Frank, dur uh, uh, without Frank CNS involvement. And then it even got, to me, started getting a little bit more crazy. What about BCL2, MIC expression? Um, let's just call those high risk. They have a higher risk of relapse. So we started giving uh, them, I feel like, I feel like I was giving CNS prophylaxis to, you know, uh, a lot of my patients uh, uh, for a, a risk of something that was rather small. Yeah, that's a good point. So, Matt, I mean, the 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 issue becomes well. Let's let's backtrack. Let's 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 define the high risk patient population because I was also during my training, which was way before both of your trainings, I was really brought up that CNS prophylaxis should be given with anyone, anyone with high LDH and extranodal site. That's one. The other thing was anybody with proximity to the CNS, so tonsillar involvement epidural, sinus involvement, you know, it's close enough, so we just have to give it. And then lastly, uh, was with the double hit lymphoma, whether it's chromosomal cytogenetics or double expressors, that we have to do that. And I admit that I started, I was giving intrathecal, and then I migrated into high-dose methotrexate towards the end. So let's first of all agree, who are the high-risk patients of CNS disease and then we're going to debate after we agree who are they, whether they should get anything or not. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, this this is maybe an area of this whole topic where we have moved on, certainly in identifying these high risk patients. But you know, it, it remains imperfect, definitely, as we'll as we'll discuss. So, we in the UK were similar. We used to, uh, the guidance used to be to give intrathecals, um, and then only recently have we updated the guidelines to say. I just met the and in terms of who we used to give it to, similarly, it was anyone with uh, more than one external site and raised LDH um, uh, or involvement of the, the many sites that you, you mentioned there, Chatty. But I think we have seen over the years literature to say that a lot of these extra nodal sites were traditionally deemed to be high risk or were actually really um, sites that were just associated with advanced stage um, high risk disease anyway. And actually, independently, these sites don't bear, bear out as, as independent risk factors for the majority of them. So things like uh, craniofacial or sinus involvement, um, these kind of things. Now, I think we've established that 
in, in themselves and not independent risk factors. We will see them in patients with other high risk factors for CNS relapse. And the, and the CNS IPI, you know, I think has been an advance, but it, it does remain imperfect. So Aaron summarized it there, but I mean, we, we need to remember that what well, the, the high risk group, uh, the risk is 10% overall, um, but I think it's like four, yeah, 40% of CNS relapses will occur out with a high risk group. So we're, we're definitely not capturing them all just with the CNS IPI. So clearly there are still other characteristics that we need to think about. I think um, certain high risk sites, mm -hmm. I think we can agree probably are still independently high enough risk. So renal obviously came out in the CNS IPI. I think we could agree on that. The data for things like uterine and breast, you know, there are re mainly retrospective studies suggesting very high rates of these sites, you know, in the region of 20 to 30 percent. And um, so, you know, we would still consider offering it to these these patients, but uh, the data is not great, but I think there's enough to say they are probably still high risk. And then, yeah, we get on to the biological risk factors, which is, yeah, we talked about, um, you know, double hit lymphomas. Uh, or, and even used to be thought just a mixed translocation in itself was high enough risk. And again, I think that risk has been overestimated over the years. You know, initially, as you know, in, in the DLBCL trials, it was only really the high risk patients who were getting fish performed. So fish wasn't really performed uniformly. So we probably weren't picking up who all these double hit patients were. And I think initially the, the kind of risk of CNS relapse in these patients was overestimated. And, and now there's more recent data to suggest you know, from some of the big prospective trials, even the Goya trial, um, that probably that risk is lower uh, with 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 double hit lymphomas, and you know maybe possibly more in the region of kind of five percent. So we have stopped say we have stopped using double hit in itself as a reason to give CNS prophylaxis. A lot of these double hit patients, as you know, present with other high risk features that we you know we would incorporate. But in itself, we don't consider it an independent risk factor. And we haven't gone even to giving. Uh... CNS prophylaxis. I think what I was trying to identify who are the high-risk patient population to consider giving a CNS prophylaxis. Aaron, so these are the high-risk patients. Well, I just want to say, well, first, I, I think my first argument is we can't really agree on who the high-risk patients are. Um, so again, you know, I think it's more of an approach just, you know, how some, how we practice oncology or hematology in general, um, you know, with, for me, at least with additive therapies, I, uh, especially to a large majority of patients who are cured, whether it's in the maintenance setting or CNS prophylaxis, I need to be fairly confident uh, that I'm helping uh, uh, these patients out. So first, we really, I don't think anyone can really agree who the high, high risk are. And I agree with all the things that Matt said that the certain, but we really don't know for sure. Uh, I, I think the best data we have is the CNS IPI, it's at least the most controlled. Um, so if we want to arbitrarily say that uh, a risk of CNS relapse of 10% or more is high risk, then we can do it. But as we said, we are clearly missing some people who are going to relapse. And then the positive predictive value of the CNS IPI, I think it's only like 10%. So we already have to accept that we're over-treating 90% of patients in the best case scenario. So I, I think that's one of my main arguments. Number one is the lack of agreement on high risk uh, of CNS relapse. My, my second um, point is, I think if we're going to accept the fact that an intervention at diagnosis or during the early treatment period benefits these patients, we meaning with CNS-directed therapy, whether it be IT or high-dose methotrexate, we are kind of assuming that there is a cult CNS involvement at baseline, at least biologically. So that, that we have to accept. And, you know, I don't, you know, is that true or not? No one, no one knows. Uh, and then we have to accept the fact, I think what I just brought up is that the majority will be 
be overtreated. And, and, you know, we gave IT methotrexate. And I think you said you guys were giving it too. And then all of a sudden we switched to high dose methotrexate. And I don't, you know, for me, when I switched to high dose methotrexate, although now I do none, it was literally just reading a blood how I treat article. Uh, I think it was in 2017. And I, I read the how I treat article. It was pure ignorance on my behalf. I, I think the author pointed out that the majority of, of CNS relapses are parenchymal, uh, 58%, and then an additional 12% are uh, in the meninges and parenchymal. And I was like, this makes, why the hell am I giving IT methotrexate if that, if 80, 70, 80% of these are interparenchymal. So that is the reason why I switched, but, um, but you know, I'm curious Aaron, why you guys switched over yeah, to But Aaron, uh, well, let, let's agree on a couple of things. Uh, yeah. Can we agree that we cannot answer, we cannot, not every practice that we do in oncology is supported by our prospective randomized control trial. Can we agree on that? Yes, 100%. Okay. Um, and you know, I mean, uh, good. So we agree on that. Many examples exist. Although this could be studied if we really wanted that, to. That's that's my my question to you is, what kind of trial would you really do to answer a question like this definitively? I'm struggling with that particular. You would take the high risk. Tell, tell design the trial. Uh, before I design the trial, I think my, my another one of my arguments is I think prophylaxis is not the right strategy for, for these patients. I think better systemic control is really going to be the best practice to uh, preventing CNS relapse. If we look at the addition of rituximab uh, uh, to CHOP, uh, the rates of CNS relapse, I don't know the exact percents, but they went down. And I think more closer to one to 2%. And since the addition of rituximab, we have failed to improve on our CHOP. Um, I think we'll hopefully get there maybe with some of the bi-specifics and more novel approaches. It's clearly not intensifying chemotherapy. That's a whole nother talk and I don't want to talk about it. Um, but um, uh, I think with the addition of some of these novel, so I think if we could control systemic disease, uh, we can prevent CNS relapse. So yes, we could design a prospective trial looking at CNS prophylaxis, or we could do what we're largely already trying to do in the field is get better frontline trials. And man, we have tried uh, numerous noble efforts. Uh, it just hasn't been, been effective yet. Um, so, I mean, I could tell you, I mean, if, I think we, I think actually designing that trial is not super necessary right now because we're already doing what needs to be done, which is designing better frontline trials. And, and as you said, I think some of the traditional risk factors for, for CNS relapse, as Matt brought up, all that kind of intertwines with a huge disease burden at baseline. You know, they have those really sick, numerous extranodal sites, high LDH, which is more the reason why I think it supports better systemic control will be the answer, at least in my opinion. Matt? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't argue with any of that. I, I think that's true. We know that a lot of uh, probably 40 to 50% of CNS relapses occur in the setting of active or relapsed systemic disease as well. So I think, yes, that, that does suggest a failure of systemic therapy. Um, but, you know, it comes that we, we, within the CNS IPI, going back to that, you know, the, the patients with a CNS IPI of six, they've got a 30% risk of CNS relapse, you know, CNS IPR5 is like 15%. So it all comes down to, to a balance of risk, doesn't it? Because, you know, what, and what we're trying to prevent for these patients is absolutely devastating and fatal. And we know that patients with active CNS involvement, they, you know, they've been neglected over the years in terms of involvement in, in, in trials and it's often an exclusion criteria for trials. You know, it's an exclusion criteria for CAR-T therapy, certainly over here anyway. Um, and yes, it is a very rare event, but it's devastating. And I think I, I can't argue with it with that, all, everything that Aaron said. We need to get a lot better at this. We need to get better at picking out these patients. But there's no doubt that these patients exist. These patients, there are patients who are really exceptionally high risk. And I, I think we need to just get better at selecting them 
And yes, we probably need to find a better way of preventing it. But right now, there is nothing that I've seen that is better. Uh, and we do have some, if, if, albeit poor data, to support high-dose methotrexate. So, Matt, can I let, let me maybe, I know I'm moderating this. I'm trying, I'm struck by one thing. I mean, um, just because we have a high risk of something, it doesn't mean we could do much about it. I mean, I think we, we could in certain situations, right? But there are times where you just do your best with the treatment and you may have a high 30% risk of a particular toxicity. And that's really the, you know, there's nothing you could do to mitigate that risk. So I see your point that the risk is very high, but if the risk is high, can you, what's the evidence that we could diminish that risk? And, and then what type of study would you show Aaron to try to convince him that doing this is helping these patients? Yeah, so uh, yeah, we can all agree there is no, there's no, there has not been a gold standard study to demonstrate a benefit by dismethotrexate. There's never been a prospective randomized trial to demonstrate a, a benefit, which I know we would all want. I think the problem with trying to design a trial like that would be very, very difficult because it comes down to how rare this event is and the numbers you would require to have sufficient power in your trial to, to demonstrate a, a, a benefit or not of a prophylactic strategy would be enormous. And I think that's part of the reason why we haven't seen a prospective trial yet and maybe we never will. So it comes back to your point, you know, we have to rely on the best evidence that we have and try and make a kind of pragmatic decision about it. And what we know is that there are some retrospective data sets uh, acknowledge that demonstrating a benefit of hydrosmethotrexate. So um, there was, to go through a few, so there's an Italian series from, uh, from Andre Ferrari from a few years ago. Um, it, he give, uh, they give hydrosmethotrexate at the end of RTOP therapy, um, relatively small numbers, but, and, and to a high, but to a high risk patient group, and they had no CNS relapses within their cohort. Um, the Massachusetts study from Abramson that, that kind of was the, the, until recently was the only published uh, experience of intercalating hydrosmethotrexate with RTOP. You know, again, a, a relatively high-risk patient group, they give hydrosmethotrexate in between cycles of RTOP uh, to high-risk patients and had a CNS relapse risk of, I think, about three, between 3 and 5% in a, in a high-risk group. Um, and then another Australian study a few years ago by Chan Che, who's done a lot of work in this area, comparing hydrosmethotrexate with, mainly with intrathecals as well, it must be said, versus intrathecals alone versus nothing. And again, demonstrating a, a lower, statistically lower CNS relapse risk in those who have hydrosmethotrexate. So none of these studies by themselves are, are definitive by any stretch of the imagination, but they are what we have at the minute. And, it, and we'll come on to talk about the more recent studies that have kind of triggered all this that are now starting to question it. But in my mind, nothing has come out that is sufficient to kind of override the kind of cumulative evidence that we have already suggesting how this methotrexate may, may help. Aaron, we, I mean, we don't have one powerful study that answered these, the question definitively, but we have a collective or totality of evidence that support maybe we reduce the risk and, and help patients. What are your thoughts there? I mean, do you want survival benefit? Like, is that what you're looking at or? Well, I mean, ideally, but I agree. I think the endpoint of preventing a CNS relapse, even if they're going to be cured is, is very important, um, right? I mean, a CNS relapse 
if it doesn't result in death, that means they got a lot of chemo and probably a stem cell transplantation. So I, I think I agree completely that we need to do what we can to prevent that. Um, but as you know, this is a super rare event, okay? Um, and a lot of this, this super rare event, I mean, like one to 2%, if you look at everything in aggregate in the rituximab era. Uh, um, and, you know, a lot of these CNS relapses are also going to relapse systemically at the same time. So, you know, whether we prevented the CNS, if they still relapse systemically, I don't know how much we, we, we help that patient. So, you know, and all the data you cited, it's retrospective. And I, I think, like, I, I just don't really rely on retrospective data anymore when it comes for treatment for the large part. And again, because I know 100%, I need no study to be run that high-dose methotrexate and or intrathecal methotrexate results in toxicity, because it does. There's some expense and it's a pain in the butt for patients. I, I don't want an LP uh, if I didn't need one. I, I would, no, it's definitely not with intrathecal methotrexate. I've seen neuropathy after that. And high-dose methotrexate, you know, this isn't like a benign, I mean, like if it was given a, you know, a statin or something that was a nothing, then I would be okay maybe with the retrospective data. Uh, but this is high dose methotrexate. And um, for the most part, it goes okay, although that still requires, you know, a hospitalization. Um, I don't want to be hospitalized. You know, that's like a whole new dynamic to DLBCL. If you don't, most don't need to be hospitalized and then get cured. Like, I don't know, that's a, a, a few hospitalizations, depending on how many we do, which is another argument. Do we do one? Do we do two? Do we do four? Maybe six is the magic number. I don't know the hell. I don't know what to do. So, and it's toxic, high-dose methotrexate. Even if it goes wrong one in a hundred times, it can go really, really wrong, okay? And, and really hurt the kidneys and there's cumulative nephrotoxicity. So the intervention is not benign. So if we're going to do a non-benign, expensive, and annoying intervention in a large group of patients who no, don't need it with this questionable, if any, it's going to be a small benefit if it's real. You can't convince me to do it. Uh, uh, that, and I think that's just, I don't think it's wrong to do it. And I think these are all discussions you have to have with patients. Although I've, I've been framing it kind of just how I framed it to you guys. And I think it has a large, what patients do is largely dependent on how the oncologist frames it. But I frame it like that. And I think I'm being truthful. And since over the last year, especially since some of the ASH abstracts, I've stopped doing it. And I haven't had a patient yet um, say, um, I disagree and want to do it. Um, I still haven't yet, and I don't know what I'll do, and maybe this is another debate, a, a testicular lymphoma, you know, what I would do there. I feel like it would be unethical to give high dose, not, not give CNS prophylaxis, but then the other part of me is like, I don't really know it's helping, so I don't know what I'll do in that situation. So I, to summarize, um, I, I can't do it based off the current data, even if they in generally sum, summarize that it maybe benefits these patients. But I mean, but Matt, are there any other data that we are going to get beyond what we have now in April 2021? I mean, I, I could, I'll, I'll take Aaron's argument and maybe if there's something that we're going to get in the next year and I will say, okay, current data doesn't exist, maybe in a year we'll have something to resolve this. But if we're not going to get anything, this is as best as it gets, I still think we need to have, I don't know, a consensus or something, I mean, to help patients. Yeah. So you know, going back to a couple of things, aren't that if we can agree on intrathecals, I think we can all agree on that, right? That, you know, I think that the evidence is there now to say that they, they don't they don't help. Um, they can actually harm. And you know, I think we can accept that we can forget about intrathecals. Um, the in, in terms of your question, Sadi, so I think there will be more data. Um, we are leading a study. So we, we published our UK study last year of um, comparing intercalated to end treatment hydrosmethotrexate. So that, that study was designed to 
I guess under the presumption of hydrosmith effects it works. Okay, so we weren't trying to prove uh, whether hydrosmith effects it works or not. We were trying to see when the best time was, was to deliver it. Uh, and we showed that, um, yes, if you tried to intercalate it with our chop, it did, did cause more delays and more toxicity. Um, and we didn't actually demonstrate any difference in CNS relapse between the two delivery methods. But, and, and actually, another important point was that our CNS relapse risk overall for this was a very high risk patient group was about 6%. So no, it wasn't designed to answer the, does hydrosmith effects it work? But certainly it was a low rate of relapse for, for a high risk group. But we, we knew, you know, the, the numbers we're talking about are small and this, it keeps coming back to the statistical issue whereby if you really want to demonstrate benefit of something, you need big numbers. So we, so we have expanded our study this year um, to, to, sites, to sites all over the world, really. We're trying to get a big, big, big database of hydrosmith affected treated patients. And we hope to present that at the end of the year, um, potentially at ASH. So there will be that. And I also am aware well, what, of that. Aaron, what do you think of what Matt is doing with this uh, re large retrospective? I mean, you said you, you won't buy anything retrospective. Yeah, I probably won't buy it still unless it's like uh, really, really, you know, large yeah, but, uh, Aaron, Aaron, you, you did just say that you've been influenced by the recent, you know, the stuff presented at Ash last year. That was all retrospective, but you're, you're, you referenced yeah, well, that influencing your practice. That, that's a good point. You're pointing out a little bit of my hypocrisy. That's good. But for me to, I, for the level of evidence I need to not give a therapy is less than I need to give a therapy. For the reason being, giving a therapy is a known 100% increase in toxicity and expense. So I, I, I personally require, uh, at least I've come to this conclusion, this wasn't me always, uh, this took years of me doing this long enough, uh, uh, but I require a higher level of data to give additional therapy, knowing I'm giving the majority of this therapy to cured individuals who do not need it. I think we can agree on that. The majority of patients who get high-dose methotrexate will be cured and not need it. And because of that, I require a higher level of data. I, whether that's wrong or not, I, I don't know, uh, but that's a belief I have. Yeah, but it's a bit, it's a little bit like saying, you know, probably a lot of patients we give six cycles of RTOP to will be cured with three or four. We, we, we don't know. We give them all six. They probably don't all need it. But, you know, it's a little bit like that. And I, the other thing is that, you know, you talk uh, about- but but, six, have, but that we have curative lots of trials. Yes, four might be better, but that's in the setting where I know six cures X amount of percent of patients. Uh, I don't know that four does. And this is a different scenario. This is to prevent, this is giving people who don't have disease. That's a different, they, the, the CHOP, they have disease, while this is giving people who don't have CNS disease a therapy to prevent it. So slightly different. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I think what, what, Matt, what Matt is highlighting is there are so many examples we could bring that we just don't have 100% evidence yeah. to justify this. I think the other thing is, uh, Aaron, your point, I absolutely agree. We need to be speaking to the patients about this and presenting the pros and cons and the risks. But, you know, ultimately they're going to, it's, it's hard enough for us as lymphoma clinicians to know what the right thing to do here is. So it's, it's very hard to, to, to ask patients to, to, to make decisions about this. And ultimately, as, as you'll, I'm sure you'll see, they, they will come to us and say, well, what do you think I should do? And if, I, if we've got a patient with a CNSI guy of five who's, you know, young, fit enough, you think the polar hydrosmith affects it, and you give them nothing, and they relapse in the CNS at some point. It might have happened anyway, we just don't know. But personally, I would feel that, well, we, there, there may have been something we could have done. And for that patient, uh, you know, that, that's kind of my worry, is that, that we're not giving this small, albeit small proportion of patients who may benefit 
uh, we're doing them a disservice at the minute with the data that we have. Yes, no, that's a devastating worry and I agree, but my brain goes the opposite and I would feel worse if I gave that same individual high dose methotrexate and I screwed up their kidneys uh, for good. Uh, um, and I yeah. would feel, personally, I always feel worse um, in any setting of oncology, I always feel personally worse if I cause the harm than the disease. Although you're right, you know, lack of treatment could cause harm from disease. But in this setting, this isn't. This is to prevent, so uh, uh, not known disease. So uh, I, again, I just I couldn't live with myself if uh, I gave high-dose methotrexate and, and caused uh, irreversible harm for something they almost certainly didn't need. Yeah, I mean, what are, what are the chances? What are the chances that the toxicity that Aaron is worried about indeed happens because, um, I mean, if you give it uh, with proper precautions, it shouldn't happen, no? Yeah, I mean, we, I, I, I agree with you, Aaron. Like, the hydrosmethotrexate is a toxic therapy, and I think it's very important to select your patients appropriately, um, you know, with, uh, you know, ensuring their baseline renal function is satisfactory, that they can cope with the fluid shifts involved, that, um, you know, that they're generally fit enough for it. And yes, renal significant renal injury happens it was actually not i mean for what it's worth in our study our uk study it was actually relatively low it was less than five percent of all hydrosmethotrexate cycles delivered then uh, resulted in significant renal toxicity but i absolutely agree it's there you really have to pick your patient properly but you know everything that we give has risks of toxicity um but you know i can't disagree it, it's, a, it's a treatment that you really have to pick your patients very carefully for because it's not without potential harm Aaron, what were the data at the last ASH meeting that made you feel stronger against CNS prophylaxis? For listeners, there were a couple of studies probably came out at ASH of this past year that strengthened Aaron's position and weakened Matt's position. So what, 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 what are these trials? Yeah, I don't know the data off the top of my head. I mean, I think it might have been out of Matt's group, uh, but the retrospective study where they looked at uh, uh, high-dose methotrexate uh, amongst patients with fairly high risk of CNS relapse. I don't know the numbers, but they were large numbers. It was just published also uh, in article form, and it basically showed no benefit uh, uh, in a large series. Uh, again, retrospective. And then also uh, the paper that the map brought up, uh, I believe it's published where they looked at high-dose methotrexate. You know, I was always under the pressure if we're going to give it, it's good to give it right away when you have the disease burden that's high and really intercalated on day 14. So you give RCHOP on day one, and then on day 14 or 15, give the high-dose methotrexate, and you do that the first few cycles. And then their group showed uh, that there was no difference between doing it up front uh, as opposed to doing it delayed at the end. Uh, so I think those two studies uh, were enough that it, it further, and actually a lot of it just made me think about this more. I just didn't think much about high-dose methotrexate uh, or, 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 or IT prophylaxis. Uh, but when, when I thought about it more and how it aligned with my views of over-treatment is what we do a lot of in oncology, and we should do efforts to minimize that. Uh, that's how I changed my mind. The solution is to let Aaron think less. So, uh, <laughs> Ma Matt, uh, how do you position your thoughts about CN prophylaxis in view of the two recent studies that just Aaron mentioned? Yeah, sure. So, well, so the second, the second one you mentioned, Aaron, was our our study that we published in Blood Advances last year. So, and you know, as, as I described, we appeared to show that giving hydrosmethotrexate at the end of treatment didn't increase the risk of CNS relapse. But, you know, we have been very cautious about saying that that is definitive because of the numbers involved, and that's why we're trying to expand it. Um, because, it, you know, the, the rationale, as Aaron said, is that, you know, we know that most CNS relapses occur, you know, the median is about 68 months in diagnosis. So 
of course you don't want to get your treatment in early, but there may be, we maybe are starting to show that giving it early perhaps is, is not particularly a benefit over giving it at the end of treatment, but we may know that a little bit more clear later this year. This, the data published, uh, presented at ASH and then the, the study published recently in the American Journal of Hematology from the Canadian group. So first of all, like, you know, without wanting to sound like I'm just criticizing the whole paper, you know, I think kudos to them for carrying this out, you know, having tried to, having been involved in doing these big data collection studies in DNS prophylaxis, it's a big undertaking and I think they did a great job, but, you know, I think we need to highlight some of the problems with this data. Um, so they basically, I think it was a two-center study in Canada, they collected data on patients and meeting their their criteria for high risk of CNS relapse, which were fairly, you know, standard agreed criteria. And then they they then did, you know, various analyses, multivariable analyses, looking at whether hydrous methotrex in, in CNS relapse. But in the end, they actually only had 115 patients who had hydrous methotrex. So their group of high risk patients was about 300, 350. But, but only 115 of those had hydrous methotrex, yet the rest didn't. And it wasn't really clear why the rest didn't. They, they met their criteria, but they didn't get it. So that in itself, you know, really suggests some significant selection bias going on, doesn't it? And yes, and the other thing is that that hydrous methotrexate group, the ones who got it, they definitely had higher risk features. So they had more patients with more than one extranodal site. We know that's definitely a, a risk factor. They had more patients with renal involvement. So, you know, we're not looking, I think, here at equal groups. And yes, they, they seem to show that hydrous methotrexate didn't reduce that risk of CNS relapse. That was kind of their conclusion. But those are the significant caveats. And there was also a few other things, you know, that quite a lot of the patients in the hydrous methotrexate group, actually, I think almost half of them were consolidated with NOTO. Um, so that's got to be a confounding variable. Uh, a reasonable portion actually got our put up to MRI back. They didn't just get our chop. Um, so I think it's a useful study. Like, that, we just have to keep adding to the evidence as much as we can. But you know, it comes back to, for me, it's not, it's not enough to say we should be stopping giving this. But one, one argument I want to make is we know is that, you know, a bigger competing risk of death uh, for those in CR of DLBCL is relapsed DLBCL systemically. So yeah, I, mean, I could argue, let's just give more therapy. Yeah, let's consolidate them with whatever you want to do. We might prevent a few percent of those, but we don't. So, you know, uh, um, I mean, right, you could do an auto, you know, um, and maybe benefit the PFS in that high risk group if you look at the random. I mean, but we don't, um, uh, you know, or we could do additional therapy. And then the other argument I want to make is I am hopeful that with the bispecifics or some of the new approaches we're going to incorporate in the front line with the ongoing trials that we will uh, finally improve upon our CHOP. Uh, let's just say we improve upon it by five to 10 percent. Uh, um, well, then what do we do with the, all the, are we going to, are we going to continue? I mean, do we have to start over with hydrous methotrexate and, uh, you know, so th those, those types of things. So um, I, I think, I, I will admit, I think your strong point is you're right. And that young person who's probably going to fly through high-dose methotrexate with minimal issues uh, that's super high risk, then it's really not such a big deal. Um, but I still, I still, I still don't think I'm going to change. I don't, I'm really not be, I will discuss it with everyone. I won't recommend it, but if they strongly disagree with me and want to seek a second opinion, I will always say, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to disagree with my recommendation on that. Aaron, let me ask you a quick question. Yeah. I mean, like just for example, because there are some variations even within the same faculty members at the same institution. Like it, it, let's say at your institution, if there are like wh whoever seeing malignant hematology, is there a consensus right now at your institution that everybody believes no CNS prophylaxis, or do you see variation even 
at your own center across other centers? Because clearly the question is not resolved in the mind of everyone. There is variation in our group. Um, you know, again, we, uh, um, when I go to the tumor board, if it comes up as a recommendation, I just say no, but I don't know what the individual doctor <laughs> ends up doing. Uh, but there are people who believe in it. There are some that still give IT methotrexate. And, and again, like, I know we all uniformly now agree that IT methotrexate's no benefit. Off, not the best data anyways, but you know, why did we all of a sudden arrive at that? And now we're all about idos methotrexate. Uh, we'll just wait for the more data on idos methotrexate, and then we'll change our mind on that and say that they need some other therapy. So again, it's just, uh, there is no variability in practice. And, um, you know, for the community physicians, you know, who may not have as much, you know, giving high-dose methotrexate, we have a dedicated leukemia lymphoma service. It's a, you know, fairly straightforward for us to do it. Uh, but I would suspect it less volume centers who, who come to us for a second opinion. And then we say, oh, I recommend high-dose this. Uh, here you go, go deal with it. It, it, it. We might be doing more harm in those particular scenarios. So let, let's try to do this because I think that, I, again, there's probably limited future information that we're going to get, I, I would think. I think my sense is that the field of lymphoma is kind of moving to different questions. Um, I tend to, um, I like what Aaron is saying about better systemic therapy. He's a little bit more optimistic than me. I actually don't see a regimen that's going to improve over our chop. Um, I think everything has, has failed so far. I'm not seeing anything that is making me um, believe our chop will lose anytime soon. I would love to. But Matt, you, you are pro-CNS prophylaxis. Give me an example of a patient in that high-risk group that you would not give CNS prophylaxis to. And I'm going to ask the same question of Aaron, where I want to challenge Aaron to give me a phenotype of a patient that he would at least consider giving CNS prophylaxis to. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And so I'll give you an example. And, and what looking at the CNS IPI, I think we have to consider that age is a, is a factor in the CNS IPI, especially age, age over 60. So a lot of older patients with fusillard B-cell lymphoma will end up with a high CNS IPI because they're already scoring one factor for age. Um, but we know that you know the older the patient, and particularly when they get to over 60, um, the less likely they are to be able to tolerate hydrosmith effects. So for example, a patient who is 70 years old, let's say, um, who has a CNS IPI of four, one because of their age, maybe they've got reaction nodal sites, advanced stage disease, and a LDH that's like, you know, a bit of, a bit above normal. There, there you go. They've got a CNS IPI of four. Um, uh, and, then, and you might say, well, they should be offered CNS prophylaxis. But, you know, Aaron's point, you know, this is a toxic therapy and Ultimately, the biggest risk to this patient is not CNS relapse. The biggest risk is systemic failure, uh, and we and we do, do not want to compromise their RCOP delivery. So that is a patient where I would think very carefully about giving them hydrosmethotrexate at all. Certainly, would probably not try and intercalate it with their RCOP because I think you're asking for problems there, probably in terms of interrupting their systemic therapy. Um, and would would also think carefully about giving it at all to them at the end of treatment. And equally. Older patients, you know, once you get beyond 70, 75, you know, really, really, you've got to be thinking very carefully about giving them any, any CNS prophylaxis at all. So that, I guess that would be my example. Seems like the age is a major factor in, in Matt's phenotype, at least. Aaron, is there a phenotype of a patient that comes into your clinic where at least you would think twice and you would say, maybe I should give this man or woman CNS prophylaxis? Any phenotype? Well, the youngest age I treat is 18. So let's just say an 18-year-old. 
um, who's got um, a horrific, you know, one of these, you know, that we're calling high grade B cell lymphomas that looks burkety, but we don't know for sure, uh, um, has the translocations and the pathologist is not calling it pure burkets because that would be a different discussion, uh, um, um, but burkett-like uh, with lots of extranodal disease. Um, I, 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 if I have one of those, it would be hard for me to not um, discuss it in detail with them uh, with high dose methotrexin, even, you know, whether I should intensify therapy, uh, which is something I, I no longer give dose adjusted EPOC, um, but that would maybe even be a scenario. And I haven't had one of those in a while. And hopefully I don't, um, but that would be a scenario. Yeah. It's tricky then, isn't it? Because where, you know, where is your cutoff? An 18 year old, a 25 year old, a 30 year old, a 40 year old, you know, when yeah. you stop, when do you, it, it's really hard, isn't it? And in Burkitt's we accept, at least I accept and we'll, uh, but you're right. Maybe, I mean, you know, it can be ALL. I accept that we need to give it, you know, um, so especially those lymphomas that have those features, it would still be hard for me to, to not give it. Uh, but if they're over the age of 60, it's a no, if, uh, there's no one you could give me over the age of 60 that I'm giving high dose methotrexate. Do you give it to all Burkitts, uh, Aaron? Old, I haven't treated an old Burkitts in a no, long no, time. I didn't mean old, all Burkitts. I mean, I follow the established protocols uh, that are there for, for Burkitts to at least tell my patients uh, the expected outcomes if I stay to it. So yes, I, I, um, I, I do. You know, whether that makes me hypocritical or not, I don't know. I, you know, but the, I, I follow those protocols. And, and we do need, yeah, but we have, we do need to, you know, Burkitt is a different, different. Yeah, piece yeah, there's no question about it. Yeah. I think, I think at a very high level, and, and you've been very generous with your time, we'll wrap up very soon, especially that uh, Aaron is uh, on vacation and he needs to play guitar. But uh, I think my, my biggest challenge is holistically in general when I think about evidence-based medicine and how we practice and so forth, I don't see us to I don't see us resolving all of the question in oncology, all the questions in oncology or hematology with uh, with really prospective studies that are powered and like honestly, you could give me any study and I will find problems in the study, whether it's published in whatever journal. That's why there's always a section of limitations of the study, right? You never write a paper unless you put limitations towards the end. Otherwise, the reviewers will say, bring it back. Because it's the nature of the beast. There are limitations to any study that we do. So I always feel, and that's me, like we, despite imperfect science, because science is not perfect, we still have to treat that patient in the room that is asking for our help. And, you know, we could talk about p-values and power study and the number of patients, but that Mr. You know, Mr. Smith in front of you, he just wants to know whether he should get that treatment or not. And, and the pragmatic brain of mine struggles in finding a trial for every single question. I mean, honestly, like, you know, goodness, I mean, look how we treat... Um, I don't know. I mean, BMT patients, I mean, I, I'm not a transplanter. I did a lot of auto-transplant, but Aaron rotates on the transplant unit a lot. And, you know, I mean, you know, transplant patients get a whole host of prophylactic therapies and men, a lot of things that you could argue that maybe you were overdoing it or underdoing it. So I don't know. I, part of me is, I, I just don't know if we're ever going to reach that point where we can answer that question. Yeah, and uh, I, I agree. I don't. I don't think we'll ever answer the question definitively. But I, I, I'm going to, you know, finish with a bit of optimism. I think there are things that we are and and will do that will help. You know, I think that the way we characterize or the way we classify diffuse large B cell lymphoma 
is going, you know, is changing. It's maybe not made it into routine clinical practice, but as we know now, we've got much more information on the particular molecular subtype. And within that, we know there's definitely a, a molecular subtype that is a, a particularly high risk of CNS relapse. So I think the way we classify these patients is going to uh, improve and we may be able to pick out these high risk patients better. And I think the other way that, you know, really interesting area is the, the data presented at ASH um, looking at circulating tumor DNA in the CSF. And back to Aaron's point about, you know, surely these patients have occult disease there at the beginning. Um, and there was a study that published at ASH where they, they took a big, big cohort of DLBCL and looked back at their diagnostic CSF. And um, first of all, they took out patients who did actually relapse in their, in their central nervous system, and they were able to use their circulating tumor DNA technology to detect disease in the CSF there where, where normal CSF analysis had failed. Um, and they also took a very high risk group of patients with all these kind of high risk features we've talked about. And they were able to find occult circulating tumor DNA in CSF in 40% of them or something. So, so I think we will get better at picking these patients out. I think we have to. And uh, whether we'll actually find a, a prophylactic treatment that, that, that benefits them, I, I just don't know. But I think there are areas where we can improve. Aaron, uh, I'll, uh, I want to finish with the like, closing statements for each of you, but um, I want to just maybe ask you a provocative question because, um, see, I mean, I'm not a big fan. Uh, I mean, I'm okay fan, but not a huge fan of clinical factors. Like when you look at CNS, IPI, yeah, I mean, there's LDH and performance test, age, whatever it is, but all of these are clinical factors and, and they're good, they're important. But what if, what, if, what if you have a particular genomic prototype or, or, or a particular profile that is looking at, you know, again, genomic uh, level of overexpression, underexpression? Similar, if you remember like 20 years ago, when we were able to find that some patients with DLBCL were, they're actually Burkitts, and some Burkitts are DLBCL. If you remember Sandeep Dave, who's currently at Duke, he published that a long time ago. And, and that profile, that genomic profile, identifies to you a subset of patients that are at the highest risk of CNS disease. Wouldn't that sway you a little bit differently? Because now you're really taking away that, you're looking at the biology of disease more than anything else. I mean, it all depends on the, you know, the positive predictive value. If, if you could show me in a group of patients that it's picking up, you know, you know, my big thing is over-treatment uh, of, of cured patients. And um, with our current strategies, I think we all agree that you'll be largely treating people who don't need it with high-dose methotrexate. So yeah, if you had some genomic thing, either, you know, some NGS or whatever that showed me that, that, that these are the people who are all getting it, they have this, you know, maybe my D88 or whatever mutation it is or combination uh, that they got rid of more subjective-like measures, you know, performance status and things like that. Even LDH, you know, on a given day, it can vary. Um, then yes, I would be more inclined to use it uh, uh, because then I know I'd be treated. At least I could accept that I'm treating less patients who don't need it. Whether it's helping or not would be a different story, but I'd feel better about it, okay? Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, to answer your question, especially, you know, with the, the, the transplants, you're right. A lot of the stuff we do is without data, and it's your comfort level of, of, of using the data, you know, uh, of, of using treatments in certain settings. For me, my comfort level has changed when it's giving therapies, and I'm repeating myself, in the maintenance setting or to prevent other things. I'm just now requiring a higher level of evidence uh, for me personally, because I know with certainty that the additional therapy will have issues. I mean, I can give an example for I used to transplant all T cell lymphomas and CR1. 
I'm no longer doing that. Now there are some exceptions, uh, 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 but I'm largely no longer doing that uh, um, because I came to the conclusion, I was like, I'm gonna give someone an auto freaking transplant who doesn't need it like that. That was like, oh my God, you know? Uh, um, um, and we really don't have a definitive data that answers that question. So I am, I've, I've changed and I, maybe I'm wrong or not. And that's been a whole nother debate. So um, but that was supposed to be my conclusion. Yeah. You ought to Papa him so you can yeah. change. Well, I'm learning and I'm first to, I, you know, I would love to be shown, you know, I'm, I change my mind a lot when I, you know, and I'll admit when I'm wrong. And, um, but right now I, I stand by the no hydros methotrexate. All right. So uh, 60 seconds, closing statements, Matt, you go first. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've uh, in part been playing devil's advocate during this debate. You know, I wish I knew what the answer was. I don't think either, either, neither of us know, none of us know, but I do still think that the cumulative body of evidence uh, is there to support giving how methotrexate to prevent a very devastating uh, outcome for our patients. And I think that the, there is the emerging evidence of trying to question that, of trying to disprove it, uh, is not sufficient yet to, to, to drop it. I think we, as we've discussed, we do need to be very careful about how we select patients for this treatment, that it, it, is, it can be toxic. I think we are going to improve on how we select these patients um, in time. And I hope that we can maybe someday carry out a prospective study that could that could demonstrate a benefit whether it's methotrexate or a novel agent and um, that would that would just be that, that would be ideal wouldn't it but right now my position is that i want to prevent a very devastating event even if it's for a very small number of patients and i don't have enough evidence to say i shouldn't do that closing statements aaron 60 minutes or less 60 seconds or less. <laughs> i can talk for 60 minutes for the one um it's super rare okay so um, I think we can all agree on that. The majority of patients with DLBCL who are going to die from their disease, it's going to be due to systemic relapse and not CNS relapse. We have no agreed upon categorization to define who truly is high risk. It varies among centers. It varies within centers on how we define that. Um, I still contest we don't know the most effective way to treat these patients if we are going to if we accept the need for it, uh, whether it's intrathecal or high-dose methotrexate, although no one's giving intrathecal anymore. If we accept high-dose methotrexate, do we give one, two, three, four, five, six? What's the magic number of cycles? Is one just enough? Uh, and finally, we know with 100% certainty that giving additional therapy results in additional toxicity and expense and unpleasantness for the patients. And we do not know, I think with, I, I think that the level of evidence isn't as great as my colleague does, although that's up to interpretation. Um, and for those reasons, um, I do not recommend uh, uh, intrathecal uh, high-dose methotrexate CNS prophylaxis for DLBCL. Okay, well, I'm glad that we resolved the issue. So if you are a listener, it's very clearly we resolved. First of all, I want to thank both of my guests. I want to thank Matt, who is, you know, I just learned today that you have a one-month-old baby, so you're barely sleeping, and you're calling from the UK, so it's pretty late. It's close to 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. your time, so we appreciate that. I'll be up for hours yet, so don't worry about that. Yeah, versus <laughs> Papa Him is on vacation. He's just basically drinking and playing guitar and wearing ACDC tank top. So pretty much, uh, Aaron. Yeah, I have a hard uh, afternoon at the pool right now. We're very jealous, but apologies to your family because we took you away from you on time of vacation. Looking forward to uh, connecting with you online and hope we'll air this episode in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Okay, that was really fun. I think I've enjoyed this and I hope you did too. Uh, I thought it was a great dialogue, a great conversation, a great discussion. 
And there are no winners or losers here. The hope is that our winners are our patients. By being able to engage in a civil open dialogue pertaining to science and healthcare policy, by the way, but we're talking about science here, hopefully our patients are the ones that benefit. This is very important. So I want to thank my guests, Dr. Aaron Goodman and Matt Wilson, for joining me on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. And I would like to ask you to let me know how I'm doing and where I can improve. There's always room for improvement, so I hear. So you can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. And you can also email me at shadinabhan.oo at outlook.com. And don't forget to visit my website, shadinabhan.com. And this, just let me know as you browse through the website, what you think of um, the website and the features that we have there. More than happy to entertain any of your thoughts and any of your ideas and implement your recommendations and feedback into future podcast episodes. I thought it would be nice to finish with um, a couple of quotes on debates since we actually were airing a debate here. So one quote I really like is by Nelson Mandela. A good leader can engage in a debate frankly and thoroughly, knowing that at the end, he and the other side must be closer and thus emerge stronger. You don't have that idea when you are arrogant, superficial, and uninformed. The other quote, which I like also, is by Theodore Roosevelt. I took the canal zone and let Congress debate. And while the debate goes on, the canal does also. Until next time, take care.